Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a privilege to, to think about the love that sought us. That God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That you, you loved us when we didn't love you. You sought us when we weren't seeking you. Father, I pray that you would help us to feel loved by you this morning. Would you comfort our hearts? Would you confirm our hearts as we look into your word now? I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it is really hard to be a Christian today. It's hard for the church to be the church. But probably not for the reasons that you might imagine. I think one of the reasons that it's hard to be a Christian and hard for the church to be the church is because of what I will call the culture wars. If you subscribe to Christian publications or have given money to Christian, conservative Christian organizations, then you no doubt have been warned over and over about the war on Christianity. We live in a time and a place where the freedom of our religion is so great. We live in a time and place where Christianity can hold its own in the world of intellectual ideas. Yet we are training ourselves to always be afraid. We're afraid of when the next shoe is going to drop. I think, it seems to me, the evangelical church is running scared. And like a child afraid of a monster underneath their bed, we have largely scared ourselves. Because after all, this war on Christianity hasn't directly affected very many of us. And yes, it's hard for the church to be the church, and it's hard to be a Christian today. Not because of the supposed war on Christianity, but because of the story we're telling ourselves about the world. It's almost impossible not to live in constant fear because we have convinced ourselves there is so much to be afraid of. Well, not just that. It's hard for the church to be the church, and it's hard to be a Christian today, on the other hand, because of what we love. There has been a focus on the family that has been central to the evangelical world for a long, long time. There has been an implicit assumption that good Christians have good families. In fact, the problem is even deeper than that. There has been a hidden agreement with God that if I do the right things, then he will bless me particularly with respect 
to my family. It's not a prosperity gospel per se. It's not the prosperity gospel that's really infected the evangelical church as much as it is a virtue gospel. In other words, the belief that if I do the right thing, God will be obligated then to give me the right things. For instance, the purity culture promised that if someone waited until they were married to have sex, that after they were married, they would have great sex. Similar bargain uh, comes to a man if he's masculine and protective and godly husband, then God will give him a sexy and fruitful and attentive wife. And his children will fall in line and make him proud. Well, it's hard to be the church. And it's hard to live as a Christian when we pursue happiness in the very same things as the world around us. When we make anything, even good things like family or marriage or sex, into ultimate things, it's hard to be Christian. It's hard to be Christian because we have struck this deal with God. We'll toe the line in regard uh, to what He expects of us if He will give us the family and the material possessions that we need to be truly happy. I hope you heard what I just said. That we'll do what God expects of us if he will give us the family and material possessions that we need to be truly happy. That should, that should become obvious that that's a problem, right? Because Jesus alone is ultimate. Jesus alone is the true source of happiness, but we've told ourselves a story. And the story says that we can have a transactional and even mechanical relationship with God if we insert the right inputs like morality or niceness or some of those things you know you're supposed to be, if we insert those inputs, he will give us the outputs that we really want, like a happy family and enough money, a secure job, a happy retirement. The reality is it's hard to be a Christian and to be the church when your dream is the American dream instead of Jesus' dream for the kingdom of heaven. Now, before you rate this prematurely as one of Pastor Scott's worst sermons ever, you should consider whether I am reflecting the words of Jesus or not. So let's read them in Matthew chapter 10, we'll begin in verse 26. Matthew chapter 10, I'll begin reading in verse 26. It says, So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, 
or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. What you have heard whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing or for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men... I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet, because he is a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person, because he is a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. I suspect if you were to speed read that, or say, I'm going to read through the whole book of Matthew, you go, whew, it would all jumble together. So let me just sort of try and distill it down to this. Following Jesus will demand that we get clear about what to fear, about what to love, and about why the mission of Jesus is important. If you're going to follow Jesus, you must get clear on what it is you're supposed to be afraid of. You must get clear on what you should love and how much you should love it. And you need to get clear on the purpose of your life on the mission of Jesus. So let's start by getting clear about what we ought to fear. If we're going to follow Jesus, we're going to need to properly order our fears. And it's interesting to me that rather than listing the things that we should be afraid of, Jesus explicitly gives us reasons 
not to be afraid. He gives us a threefold prohibition against fear. Starts off in verse 26. I mean, it's super clear, isn't it, what he's actually saying? So have no fear of them. For nothing's covered that won't be revealed, hidden that won't be made known. I tell you in the dark, say in the light, what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. The first reason not to fear is that secrets will be revealed. Secrets will be revealed. Evil needs secrecy and deception in order to flourish. And Jesus is telling us just the opposite. Don't fear because everything will be made known. Secrecy, even conspiracies, will not prevail because what is secret will be made known. So, don't fear. The second reason that he gives not to fear is about power. Don't fear someone who doesn't have ultimate power. Don't fear these intermediate puny powers. Gives us an invitation to fear God alone. Look at verse 28. And do not fear those who can kill the body. That sounds bad enough to me. (laughs) Really. Um, Yeah. Do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Not just anybody can do that. In other words, it's not a big deal if they can kill your body. What's really a big deal, though, is what will rob your soul and destroy it. What is a big deal is if you fear something that is not fear-worthy so that you then capsize your faith. He said the only thing really worth fearing is God himself. I think Jesus is sort of pulling out uh, the wisdom literature, Proverbs 9, verse 10, fear, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And knowledge of the Holy One is insight. We're to fear only the Lord and not these other intermediate powers. Then he gives us a third reason not to fear, and that is an argument from the lesser to the greater. He wants to to take something small and say, if this is true, then you don't have to fear at all. And so he pulls out a little story about sparrows and hair. Verse 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. The smallest little bird is under the care of your father. We have 
Uh, we have some little birds living in a birdhouse right outside of our kitchen window. And so when we sit down to eat, we watch them, them come down the tree and the one feeds the other one, the one's on the nest. There's going to come a day when we have little birds around, I hope. We ever see a little, one of those little birds on the ground, though, that would be a very sad day. But even then, Jesus tells us that won't happen apart from the care of the Father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. <clears throat> that means that God cares for some of you very much. Others of us, it's not so sure, right? I'm sure that's what he means. Actually, probably what he means, pretty obvious, isn't it? That the smallest little detail of your life is under the supervision and care of your heavenly Father. So, what's the conclusion? Verse 31. Fear not. Fear not. Don't be afraid, because you are of more value, I love this, than many sparrows, right? My first question, like, how many? Like six, 12, a whole flock? That's his point, is you're of more value than any um, amount of sparrows. So you are in good hands. God cares for your sparrows, for the sparrows and for your heirs. <laughs> you must know that the things which would make you afraid are under his control as well. And so we need to properly order our fears, to be af afraid of the right things and not the wrong things, to fear God and not men. Verse 32 and 33, I think, summarize this by saying, so everyone who acknowledges me before men, I'll acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I'll also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Okay, I, I probably always read that as sort of a veiled threat that Jesus is making. Like, you know, come on now, you got to do a little better to speaking up about me. That's not his point at all. His point is, Fear God, not people, and uh, opposition and stress and rejection should be expected. And when you expect them, you just keep going and fear God and not people. That, I think, is the message of Jesus. Living with difficulty and rejection is a natural state of affairs for followers of Jesus. Proverbs 29, 25 says, A fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. And so are you going to fear God or man? I think this is a serious warning to us about fearing the wrong things. And I'm afraid that the evangelical church is building a propaganda machine built on fear. And if we're being whipped into a frenzy of fear by Christian media, then to me that's a sign that it isn't the message of Jesus. Because here the message of Jesus is super clear. Do not fear. 
you know Jesus, I think you need to develop some sort of a fear meter or fear alarm. Not an alarm that goes off when you become afraid. Instead, one that signals you that if someone is trying to get you to be afraid, the alarm should go off and say, this is not Christian. In fact, it may very well be anti-Christian because Jesus tells you not to be afraid. And it will be hard, if not impossible, to be the kind of Christian, fearless Christian, that Jesus is talking about in this passage if we give way to fear. I think our fear, and I'm speaking of the church in general, makes us joust at windmills like Don Quixote instead of engaging in really significant things. So few of us have actually been a victim of any culture war or or secular persecution. We would be well served to persevere without being afraid. So don't fear because the truth will prevail. Don't fear because God is the one who has ultimate power. And don't fear because God can take care of every little thing that concerns you. So we need to get clear about what we should fear and what we shouldn't fear. We also need to get clear about what to love and what not to love. Verses 34 through 39. We're going to need to properly order our loves. Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Let that sink in a minute. I mean, we ought to like work that into our Christmas uh, celebrations, all right? Here's a Prince of Peace who's bringing a sword. He's a little more complicated than we want to uh, imagine. He says, For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, daughter in law against her mother in law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. We're going to need to properly order our loves. This flies in the face of any idea that we might have of family first. We have been coached, right, to focus on our families for years, yet here Jesus is coaching us not to. Jesus, if you look at this carefully, is saying that it is his doing to create situations where members of one's own household will resent, persecute, declare themselves enemies, and make life generally miserable because of Jesus. Jesus is the one who comes with the sword. Keep us from idolizing our families. I do think that it has become an acceptable Christian idol. And Jesus will have none of it. Whoever loves father, mother, son, or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he's saying... 
We need to get the things that we love in the right order. He's not saying don't love your family. He's just saying get it in the right order. Don't hang on to them instead of Jesus. Hang on to Jesus, come what may. I do believe this is a direct confrontation with a false gospel. And the false gospel is this. The good life is a life centered on family. This is not the only place Jesus confronts this. He does it in Matthew chapter 12. Matthew 12, 46 says, while he was still speaking to the people, his mother and brother stood outside asking to talk to him. But he replied to the one who told him, and he said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hands toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Well, what's he saying? He's saying that there are relationships that are more important than blood relatives. Namely, first of all, relationship with Jesus. The good news, the the true gospel, is that Jesus gives gives us himself. And when he gives us himself, we dare not trade him for some other person or some other group of people. Because Jesus gives gives us himself. And when he gives us himself, he also gives us other people who will do the will of his Father in heaven. Other people who are enlisted into his kingdom. And these relationships supplant the primary relationships of a biological family. The kingdom of heaven, this new humanity that Jesus is building, is built around the followers of Jesus, not merely the biological family. We have to order our loves. And when I, when I say that, I mean don't just put them in one, two, three order, like... Um, Jesus, others, you, joy, right? You see what I did there? That's order. That's not exactly what I'm talking about. I I am talking about having some sequence. In other words, Jesus is first. But then everything else is secondary. Everything else I love not for its own sake, but for the sake of Jesus. So, I love my family for Jesus' sake, not even for the joy that it brings me. That's hard, I think, to get our heads around. But I love or value people and things in relation to Jesus. So that everything I do, whether I eat or drink or whatever I do, I do all for the glory of God. Now that's all fine until you start getting right to the nitty gritty talking about family. And you might say, well, pastor, you don't know what this will mean. Well, I I think, I do, just reading what Jesus says here, I think it means you might lose your family. 
means some pretty hard things. Some things that would feel as awful as death itself. Which I think is why Jesus then gives us this summary statement in verse 38. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What's he saying? Yeah, he's saying it is bad. It is hard. It will be heartbreaking to follow Jesus. And that is the surest way to having your heart made whole. To lose those things, those secondary things that you think might make you happy is the surest way to find your heart happy in Jesus. I mean, Christians throw around uh, taking up your cross all the time. One ancient historian said, every criminal who is executed carries his own cross. It was customary for the condemned criminal to carry the bar of the cross to the place of execution. Sounds religious when we talk about it. But it would be like saying, place yourself in the firing line. Put your neck in the noose. Put your head on the chopping block. Those are all quite awkward to say and not very religious sounding. But that's the kind of language Jesus is using here. In the cross, the cross for every Christian really is the same. I mean, they may have a little different expression depending on what kinds of things you naturally love. But it's the same. Because the cross is an instrument of dying to myself. It's an instrument of killing my desires. And Jesus invites us to take it up. Because my desires, maybe my desire for a picture-perfect family, maybe my desires for safety, Maybe my desire for any version of the American dream. Those are the things the cross destroys. And so I think what Jesus is doing is he's offering us this, <clears throat> this good news that we will find our lives when we find them in Him, the very heart satisfaction we're, we're looking for in these other things we'll find in Jesus when we're willing to forego those other things. If you lose your life, you'll find it. If you pursue those other things, you'll be disappointed. That's the message of Jesus. In other words, we're going to have to figure out what it is we're really going to love in this world and why we would love them. Just like we're going to have to figure out what it is we fear and why we might fear it. 
So we have to get clear on what to fear and clear on what to love and then clear about the purpose of our lives on the mission of Jesus. If you look at verse 40, it's really clear this is about the mission. Whoever receives you receives me. Whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. So, so Jesus is circling back to, to the start of chapter 10 when he sent the apostles out on a mission. And then in, um, that was an answer to prayer in chapter 9, to pray the Lord of the harvest that he'll send forth laborers into the harvest. And then in the middle of chapter 10, it's, it's generalized to the rest of us. And what Jesus is doing is saying, don't forget that you are sent. I am sent. The Father is sending us into the world on purpose. That sent language is what makes it clear. And then he says, whoever receives a prophet because he's a prophet receives a prophet's reward. Whoever receives a righteous person because he's a righteous person receives a righteous person's reward. Whoever gives uh, one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say, he will by no means lose his reward. And so Jesus draws us back to the mission. And why are we on the mission? I mean, this is, this is really important. And it could hardly be more simple, right? Whoever receives you, receives me. Whoever receives me, receives the one who sent me. And so what Jesus is doing is saying, this, this mission that you're on, this life that you are now living as an ambassador for the kingdom of heaven matters because it is the means by which people will encounter their heavenly Father. The only way people will be reconciled to the one who sent me, the Father in heaven, is when people like you and me, when we go, when we are sent. And so if they receive you, they receive Jesus. If they receive Jesus, they receive the Father. The, the, the way that people are reconciled, the means of their reconciliation to the Father is because people like you and me, we go. We may not go um, with uh, eloquence, we may not be great at it, but we're not going to be afraid. We're going to love the right things, and we're just going to be on the mission of Jesus. That's the way that people come to know God. So the end of this mission is reconciliation with God and you probably couldn't miss it really when I read it, great reward. There's great reward here. He, he says it three different times. It's not just a throwaway idea. But if you look at it like who gets a reward and what's a reward for, 
It's those who receive you, those who receive the prophet or the righteous person, uh, they receive the reward. In other words, those who help in the mission receive a reward. Don't miss that. Those who do a part, even if it's just offering you hospitality, get part of the reward. Certainly those who go get part of the reward, but those who just receive, just take you in, just feed you a meal, get a reward. And then, I, I love verse 42. We're, we're quick to snatch verse 42 out of context and, and make it say that we're supposed to do something nice for someone. Okay, you should be nice to someone. Okay, well, I want you to be nice to someone. But look what it says. If you give a cup of cold, the one who gives a cup of cold water to one of these little ones because they're a disciple will not lose a reward. Well, who are the little ones? I think what he has in mind, the little ones are the least of the disciples. They're not the, the greatest orders. They're not the most wonderful. They're just doing the mission of Jesus. And guess what? Somebody comes along and says, you know what? I'm so glad you're doing the mission of Jesus. Have a cup of cold water. Anybody who does the littlest thing for the littlest person on mission, on the mission of Jesus, is going to get a reward. The mission is so important that God wants to reward anyone that will throw in in any little way. Any size effort makes a difference. Let that sink into you. Some of us think, oh, I can never be the hero who speaks to a full stadium. Well, great. Neither can I. But you know what? The littlest thing, a cup of cold water, offering somebody just to get off their feet for a little while, receiving them. The littlest thing is the means by which the mission advances and people receive rewards and ultimately people are reconciled to God. Now, I hope that comes as a great encouragement to you because, um, as you know, we are working on the Kingdom Initiative. The Kingdom Initiative is something our whole church is, is um, you know, in on for the whole year. And we're wanting to become a church that can plan a church. And we're all going to have to up our game on the mission of Jesus here. And some of you are probably about full of it already. Like, I've had enough. Because it is hard. The mission of Jesus is hard. There are things he asks of me that I can't, I'm not up for. But what this tells me, and, and just in case you're not part of the Kingdom Initiative, okay, you can go uh, to the Sunday Hub, follow the QR code. You can even do it while, and just blah, 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 while Scott, Pastor Scott finishes if you'd like. And join the Kingdom Initiative. There's a button there. You can join the Kingdom Initiative and you'll get daily prompts of things that you can do or ways that you can think about being on the mission of Jesus every single day. That's what we're trying to do. And you should be greatly encouraged by this text which says, you know what? If you can't do the heroic thing, do the glass of water thing because the glass of water thing counts. And so, God sees, Jesus sees the mission as so important that even the least participation in it is worth rewarding. And so I just want to remind you, 
that following Jesus is about fearing the right thing. It's about loving the right things. And it's about recognizing that you have a purpose here in this world on the mission of Jesus. And that mission of Jesus is the hope of the world. In order for the church to be Christian, in order for the church to be the church, we're going to, we're going to have to believe the gospel. We're going to have to hang on to the evangelical doctrine and at the same time keep a distance from evangelicalism because it's very easy to acculturate our religion to the American dream so that we fear what we shouldn't fear, so that we love things that we should not inordinately love, and so that we end up on a different mission than the one that Jesus sent us on. So may God grant us courage. May he help us order the things that we love, and may he keep us on mission little by little and day by day. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for including us in this mission of Jesus. Uh, thank you for it reaching to us that we might know that you loved the world and gave your only Son, that we might have life. Father, would you just grant us the grace that we need to walk day by day in courage, to love the things and people in the way that we should so that we might love Jesus the most. And Father, would you just enable us supernaturally, little by little, to make a difference in this world on your kingdom mission, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.